it's really fascinating that naivety for me is the source of innovation. The more naive, the more I feel we can innovate. Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to Create the Future, a podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. It's hard to believe that we've been living through a pandemic for over a year. But with vaccines and the increasing availability of tests, there is at least a hope that the world will eventually return to some form of normality. And today's guest is one of the many engineers who's made a huge difference during this challenging time. Chris Tomazu is the Regius Professor of Engineering at Imperial College London and the founder and chief scientist of its Institute of Biomedical Engineering. Early on during the coronavirus outbreak, Professor Tomazu and his team engineered a highly accurate medical COVID-19 test called COVID-Nudge. Instead of taking several days to give a result, the test could tell if someone had the disease in just over an hour, regardless of whether they had symptoms or not. More importantly, it didn't require access to a lab, it's portable and it's now being used by the NHS. The government has publicly paid tribute to this key COVID testing technology and the Royal Academy of Engineering awarded Chris one of the President's Special Awards for Pandemic Service. He's also founded a number of technology-based companies making electronic devices for the early detection of chronic disease. And among his many engineering awards, he won the European Inventor Award in 2014 and last year, the UK Bio-Industry Association's Joint Entrepreneur of the Year. So when the call went out from the government asking for support with tests for a new disease, how did Chris know he could help? It was before the call to action that we started to repurpose the technology for COVID. We had developed a technology then that was tackling the then epidemic, which still is actually obesity and type 2 diabetes. So we we'd developed a sort of point of care consumer technology that was out of the lab, could be run in a department store, could demystify genetics, but obviously it wasn't a medical grade technology and, and we weren't testing for any sort of virus. It was only when I got back to the UK and we started reading then that this thing called coronavirus was polluting half of Asia and that it was becoming pandemic. So you sort of had the engineering infrastructure, but it sounds like it would work in a very different way. How did the, the, the diabetes one work? So the diabetes test was a non-invasive cheek swab. In terms of the architecture of the technology, it was almost a solution before the problem of corona. <laughs> so the big, big difficulty for us was really repurposing it and, and really looking at ways in which we could go from a sort of early detection risk mitigator to a medical device that could effectively detect coronavirus in your swab. So we had a chip with lots of little wells. Uh, think of them as fishing wells. <laughs> and in each of these wells, you can spot the biomarker of the DNA, and in corona's case, the RNA that you're looking for. 
And so we'd already had a method of spotting in these wells the biomarkers for predispositions to things like type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, blood cholesterol, nutrition-related conditions. And so what we now had to do was instead of spotting these wells with these genetic mutation error biomarkers, if you like, we had to spot them with genes for COVID-19. It's a PCR test, effectively, your device. Is yeah. that right? I mean, they're supposed to take, at the level that yours works, around 72 hours to get this really precise result. How did you manage to repurpose it so that it gave results in just over an hour? My whole mission, in fact, my mission over the last 20 or so years <laughs> has been to completely miniaturize a laboratory onto something as small as a Hewlett-Packard cartridge. That's because my background is semiconductors and microchips and mobile phones. Uh, so I come from that domain of shrinking things <laughs> with technology. And because the engineering was such that it could be shrunk, all the uh, laboratory processes such as thermocycling and raising and reducing temperature, etc., could all be done in a miniaturized way. The, the big deal for us was, first of all, the ability to extract from the sample, be it saliva or a nasal pharyngeal swab, to extract directly from that without any pipettes and without white coats and without labs, <laughs> to go direct from the swab to the cartridge. And then the cartridge itself does all the things that you would do in a laboratory. And a couple of steps there is one is to deactivate the virus, otherwise kill it, if you like, as soon as it gets into the cartridge. And the next step is to convert the RNA that's been extracted from the virus, again, in the cartridge. And the extraction is a really important phase that takes place automatically in the cartridge. This is a very long-winded laboratory step so that step was not required and thirdly then cleaning and purifying the extracted dna so that you end up then with purified dna on the surface of that chip that process on its own is where a lot of manual steps take place in a laboratory importantly you have to transfer the sample from the ward to the laboratory. So that whole step, the throughput of that could take several hours. With our test, everything's extracted automatically on the, on the cartridge. And then I think of the DNA as the fish <laughs> and the fish needs to bite the bait in those wells. And uh, the bait is a lot bigger than the fish. So we need to make the fish big. And, and, and the way we do that is through that process of PCR. And, you know, PCR is a process of, if you like, heating the double helix, which separates its two strands. So you're heating the fish, if you like, the, the, the double helix fish <laughs> into two strands. You then add some synthetic DNA by cooling to bind. And then you heat again to separate. Then you cool to bind. So every time you heat and cool, you're making the fish bigger and you make the fish big enough to bite the bait. And that's why it takes just over an hour. Once the swab is inserted into the cartridge, then the cartridge 
goes into the nudge box, not much bigger than a shoe box, basically. And then you close the lid of the box and then all the magic takes place behind the scenes. And I've got one of these boxes at home. They're very small. And the cartridge so. itself is really small. I saw a picture of it and it's a circular device. It sort of fits in the, the palm of, of your hand. And it, it's amazing how, I mean, I, as with the case with vaccines, for instance, procedures that would normally take so much longer have been speeded up through an incredible effort by scientists and engineers. But you still managed to do get authorised for yeah. use very quickly by April 2020 and you had trials 400 patients eight yeah. hospitals where are they used now so we worked very very closely with the mrha with the government doing this intensive validation in at st mary's at the charing cross at the hammersmith and and initially it was covid positive wards because we knew the patients were positive uh, validating ours against their technologies, the lab technologies. Then in A&E departments where you could segregate between the green and red lines very quickly. This was a really important use case, obviously not putting COVID positive patients in negative wards or vice versa. So that was really, really important. Um, maternity wards, we validated there. There was a case where the life of the baby was saved. So there were some really emotional cases where having the speed of a result made such a big difference. And that's great even today now with this deployment, you know, of, of 5,000 boxes and 5.8 million cartridges. And has it gone beyond hospitals? We've got it in a number of mental health institutions, which is very important. You know, I won't go through stories, Sue, but it's quite sad. You know, you know you've got schizophrenic patients in hospitals and corona obviously hasn't helped at all. You, you just can't have these patients in isolation for 72 hours on their own. These patients just would not psychologically cope with having to wait all that yeah. time. There's a true, real, real value there. And then on the other side is, is the arts. We've been working very closely with the London Symphony Orchestra, where we've been testing them regularly they've been able to rehearse. And this has been since November last year. So Simon Rattle's been using the test. We've got uh, Glyborn, the Opera House. They are using our test and they're going to start live performances very soon. We're looking at East Opera. We're working with the Old Vic. So, so we're starting to bring the arts back with our test. And that's very much the consumer coming back <laughs> into normality. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. You know, I felt quite emotional, you saying that, because it's just, it's the sort of thing we've all missed. And, and it's so important. Engineers are often called unsung heroes anyway. <laughs> but, you know, you you do wonder when somebody is sitting at Glyndebourne and watching an opera or, you know, able to finally sit for a live concert whether they will realise or be aware of that engineers have helped make this possible. Do you feel underappreciated? No, well... You've won so many prizes, I'd be surprised. If you <laughs> the, the, the nicest tip for me was when Simon Rattle was interviewed, and there's a lovely piece on a YouTube where, where he thanks us, and, and, and it's just thanking DNA Nudge for everything 
DNA Nedge has done for them. Sometimes I wonder, Sue, I mean, I haven't seen my family for over a year. You know? Oh, my goodness. My wife's Australian, so they decided to spend a couple of years there as of last year. So the two years were up. They were meant to come back with me into the UK. And then I just came on my own <laughs> and I left them there because I anticipate, well, we, we were hearing about Corona anyway. And so, yeah, it's been quite difficult. That's quite a sacrifice, but they must be so proud of you. Yeah, they're happy. And it's, it's just, you know, with Zoom and everything, we we're managing. It's not the same. It's good, but it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. And, and the dedication of some of the biochemists and scientists in my lab these people you know half of them have had covid one or two of them have got chronic conditions and they've suffered they've really really put a lot of effort into this you've obviously had a a tendency as an engineer towards health and the biomedical side of it where did that come from because you studied electrical engineering didn't you at university yeah, I studied electrical engineering and, and I studied um, so-called analog and not digital. <laughs> and and, and analog is the real world, you know, it's it's the interface, it's, it's speech, sound, you know, all those things that go from the real world to the digital world. Then I got fixated about biology because Imperial College then had merged with its medical school. I always thought that biology was analog as well. So I started to move away from developing technologies for mobile phones. And in fact, I created a group called Bio-Inspired Technology. And I started modeling things like cochlear implants and retinal implants. And I modeled them in silicon chips we were able then to replace the biology with these silicon chips. But I guess my big, big turning point was when my my oldest son now, but then he was six, seven years old, lost his kidneys through genetic mutation. My wife and I had the combination of two mutations in our DNA gave him uh, the gene for juvenile kidney failure, effectively. His kidneys just were being rejected. And we didn't know about this at all. He just collapsed when he was six, seven, I think, years old. And and I've always thought that if we'd known about it early enough, we could have managed his lifestyle very differently. It was almost like watching a mini engine growing in a Rolls-Royce car. You know, if we'd known about it, we would have made a, a sort of mini car for that engine. Then that got me on to trying to sort of therefore demystify genetics because there's always this stigma attached to genetics you know it's clinical it's medical do I really want to know if I've got this or I've got that and 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 I wanted to move away from it being a diagnostic because a genetic error doesn't mean that you've got the medical condition it means you've got a predisposition to that medical condition it's not predetermination it's predisposition what predetermines is your lifestyle. It's sort of society's gain, really, unfortunately, based on personal circumstances and, you know, what's happened to your, to your son, that you were able to put your background, you know, your engineering background and interest in biology and then have this sort of personal involvement that it's all come together to help so many other people than your son. I was very lucky to be in in an environment at Imperial that gave us the freedom to innovate. 
when we pulled together the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, the whole idea was to break the silos of engineering and any sort of discipline, if you like, and try and get almost the the ingredients mixed in one environment. And you know, so you've got chemists with electrical engineers, with doctors, with physicists, all, all working together in one environment. And honestly, Sue, it's these eureka moments, particularly with this one, where there was a what if. You know, what if we put, for example, DNA on a microchip? Or what if we look at the way the physics of this semiconductor works and relate it to neural systems in biology? And it's really fascinating that, that naivety, for me, is the source of innovation. The more naive the more I feel we can innovate. <laughs> Isn't that, that creative it, freedom as well? Yeah, Isn't yes, that when, yes, when you're naive, yes, you don't yes. limit yourself. You think, exactly, why don't we do Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's those boundaries between those different disciplines where all the sort of broken languages, if you like, between you and, and, and the clinician. And, and you're having this wonderful discussion and you really don't know what they're making of what you're talking about. You don't know what <laughs> you're making of what they're talking about. You, so you always end up with almost a solution before you know what the problem is. <laughs> mm, very useful, quite frankly. But, and, and thank yeah, but then that. you find the problem and then you end up with a, you've invented something. And with the genetics, that was always the case. When we came up with the idea of trying to sort of integrate everything on into a cartridge, this was not long after the, the, the Human Genome Project had been published. And that was all about discovering new genes. If it wasn't for the Genome Project, we wouldn't have known that there were mutations for kidney failure, etc. Mm. But, you know, it really affected me so much. And, and not only Marcus's kidneys collapsing and, you know, obviously his well-being, but how primitive chronic disease management was and still is in yeah. a in a sort of consumer setting my wife and i had to run dialysis on him on a daily basis you know from morning to night for several years and and you know we're not trained and, and the paranoia of the carer is more of a <laughs> affects him more Yes. Than, 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 than anything because we don't know is this blood pressure correct or not or is this correct and, which, and, which and, is and, why it's so important to make these devices as, as simple exactly, as exactly these as wireless possible. devices these monitors what about before your son was ill when you were growing up was there anyone in the family who was a, a, an engineer were your parents in this profession that sort of sparked off your initial interest uh, my parents are typical Greek Cypriot parents. <laughs> I say typical, but family Greek Cypriots running various sort of trade businesses. Uh, my father ran a, a number of different restaurants and in the catering and hotel management business, which was something that I probably would have ended up doing. And I think one of my big inspirations was, was my uncle, and I guess he was an engineer. He was a sheet metal worker. And, and for me, gosh, this was something very different, very exciting. <laughs> it wasn't catering and washing up dishes in restaurants. This was, yeah. this was really sort of interesting. And I got into you know, how they were soldering things. I got into 
some of the electronics and I ended up doing a radio and electronics technician course we didn't have O levels at the school I went to and he did CSEs. That's quite a leap. Here you are at the position you are now, you know, multi-award winning, you know, invented this device as well as many others. You were also Imperial's youngest professor in 1994. So for you to go from there to here is is extraordinary and brilliant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think that, that, that one of the good things, though, what, was the, okay, I, I mean, I, I, I had to sort of break the tradition to do this, which was sort of part of the culture. So, yeah, that was difficult, but there were opportunities, actually. I mean, I, you know, obviously, I, I went to a, a college of further education and, and these vocational courses were really good you know yeah. those things like city and guilds technician certificates and lots could... of apprenticeships as well yeah, yeah. Th- that was really good and and then and then there were opportunities for you to aspire because you, you then thought oh gosh you know you've been exposed i would not be where i am now if i wasn't given the opportunity to go through that route just because I wasn't given everything at school didn't mean to say that I couldn't succeed nowadays I think it's quite sad I wish we had more of those sort of vocational courses for kids that want to leave school earlier but they feel that there are still ways that they can move forward so I think the sitting guilds and all that stuff should 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 come back big time (laughs) Now I'm going to move on to how you relax. I, I, I don't know what you do to relax, and I wonder whether you have any time to relax, but I am going to hazard a guess purely because with your description of the cartridge and the device and the wells and so many fishing analogies, do you go fishing? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, I don't. Oh, no, man, I don't. I no, I don't. You got that completely. <laughs> I did when I was a kid, though. I'd, I'd go and get these tadpoles. And also... As a kid, I'd I wouldn't fish, but 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 deep sea fishing because of the Greek Cypriot community I was in, we'd sort of always drive to Devon or Cornwall and go deep sea fishing. But that's my only uh, experience of fishing. No, so no. What I do just, you I, do I, to relax then? Oh, dare I say it? I don't do much to relax. I I sort of I do like listening to music, but I walk. I walk a lot. I like to keep healthy. Uh, I like to sort of go to the gym well when I can now you can't so I go running that's definitely a time to clear your head in terms of the future what what's next in mind for you obviously apart from being reunited with your family I feel that there's a lot of scope for the technology I think we've we've broken the mold in terms of decentralization we've demonstrated that we can get these devices and boxes into environments where untrained personnel can run them two things that have come out of this whole corona one is that the severity of covid is very very dependent upon chronic conditions such as obesity type 2 diabetes and hypertension etc so it's almost that the, the pre-COVID work, which was epidemic, <laughs> is now becoming almost as pandemic as COVID because people have to come out of isolation now, come back into the real world. Obesity levels have gone up and I think people will be, be very 
anxious about their health. So I see this great synergy, how actually a pandemic is helping an epidemic. And <laughs> also the, there's, that, there's that sort of, you know, spin on that old saying that, you know, COVID-19, the 19 actually refers to the number of pounds that everyone's put on during this last <laughs> yeah. year. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a huge potential right. there. Then there's two, the two branches. I, I feel like in the hospital environment, we're starting now to develop different platforms. Obviously, there's the COVID platforms and there's flu A, flu B, RSV, looking at variant, all, all the stuff that's COVID related. But then there's other applications. I think of this as almost the sort of Nespresso cartridge equivalent, where you've got a different cartridge for a different application. So you've got in the medical arena, you've got things like STIs and STDs that we can start to look at on these cartridges. I mean, gonorrhea, chlamydia, all these rapid tests can now take place in clinical environments outside of labs. BRCA genes looking at early detection of breast cancer, for example. Other women's health, really important uh, with some of these, these cartridges. And then in the consumer health, we've got a whole array of cartridges that we've started to develop one of them is obviously for the nutrition so you can go and shop with your dna if so you've got the genes for say hypertension then it's salt which is your issue if it's type 2 then it's saturated fat and sugar we've got obviously a cloud that's got all the food market supermarket products and we've related all the ingredients in those food products to these genes and then you can go and shop with your DNA by just scanning any food product in any supermarket. It will be green or red. We've developed an equivalent for supplements and vitamins. And dare I say it, you know, we've got vanity for healthcare, which is um, skin DNA. That's looking at collagen degradation, hydration. People have been wearing masks a lot, so skin hydration things like antioxidant protection, free radicals, vitamin D. And so we've, we've got a cartridge which enables you to go and shop for skincare products based upon your skin DNA. COVID testing, if anything, has, has given us a sort of mark of good scientific credibility because we've, we've obviously used the technology for a very rapid high-performance diagnostic. And we're very grateful to it, absolutely. <laughs> it's exhausting just listening to what you've got planned ahead, but um, delighted well, that this has all come out of something that's been so important and, and helpful um, during so, yeah. a, a very challenging period for everybody. Professor Chris Tomazu, thank you so much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you.